Okay, thank you, David. So this is uh, maybe at least as much for entertainment value at the end of a long day than for reality, because uh, as you'll see in our discussion afterwards, Fez and I probably agree on far more than uh, I disagree uh, with him. And I have to go very slow because he is a surgeon, so I'm going to limit how much data I show him. So why try everything? I've given the assignment. I didn't pick this. Uh, as a gastroenterologist, why try everything before surgery? And the answer is because we're good at what we do, uh, and bad things do happen after surgery. So we're good at it. So let's look specifically at our sickest ulcerative colitis patient. We hear more and more about this, frankly, because we're getting more and more drugs to treat it with. We learn more about different combinations. We learn more about how all these patients can do long-term with aggressive therapy up front. How good are we at it? Well, let's go back to Simon Lichtiger's original paper back way back in 1990. So we're talking about almost 30 years ago, and that data has held up. He used 4 milligram per kilogram. Over a seven-day period, 84% of his patients left the hospital, and over the ensuing years, whether it was two milligrams or four milligrams, there were very similar results. And you'll see in a moment that this held up much more recently. So it's not just cyclosporine. The vast majority of gastroenterologists never quite got used to using cyclosporine because it was difficult to get drug levels. It wasn't a drug to use indefinitely. So uh, along came uh, a group that looked at, it took a long time to recruit these kind of patients because these were the sickest of the sick. If you pick the wrong drug, you end up going to surgery. This was uh, infliximab, a drug everyone is apparently comfortable with by this stage. So you didn't have to go home using cyclosporine. So this was looking at cyclosporine versus infliximab in patients who had failed five days of IV steroids. This is what we now call acute severe ulcerative colitis, our sickest of the sick patients. And they were randomized, and the endpoint was at day seven. And you could see here exactly what Simon found in 1990. 85% of patients improved by day seven compared to identical results with infliximab. Looking at how quickly they got well, you see it by day six, you have this dramatic decline in disease activity. So we did very well in 1990. We continue to do very well. And now we have the benefit of having the new drug, which is not new, and a drug, therefore, that we feel very comfortable with, infliximab as well. And they continue to do well. Look at a more objective parameter, mucosal healing at three months. Again, 50% of patients, the sickest of our sick patients, we should try these things before we just send the patient for surgery. Time to colectomy. You see it here. Uh, 80% uh, don't have colectomy within the course of this study. And if you look out to seven years, only about 35% of these patients had colectomy. So we do very well with either one of these drugs. How about if the patient doesn't get better with our first drug? Can we give the second drug? If you started with the patient on cyclosporin and the patient didn't get better or got better and then relapsed, can you put them on infliximab or vice versa? Start on infliximab and then, quote, salvage them with cyclosporin. Well, we did pretty well with this as well. About 50% of patients will avoid colectomy long-term. So now we have cyclosporin, Simon Lichtiger and Dan Present proved it's effective short-term, 1990. And about six years ago, we had the first study, short-term response, infliximab versus cyclosporin, dramatic responses. And here you see how it's looked out out to uh, seven years. And here you see how it is, even if you fail one drug, transition the patient to the other drug, and you see the colectomy-free rate with sequential therapy long-term. How about if you don't succeed and you choose to go to surgery? Well, bad things happen after surgery with ulcerative colitis. Just Google Shen B and look at all the bad things that happen. 
pouchitis, many flavors. There's recurrent pouchitis. I'm running out of slides. I don't have that many minutes. I'm going to talk fast. Of all the complications we see after this much-vaunted uh, ileoanal pouch, chronic pouchitis, meaning you're on antibiotics all the time. We had this major operation to, quote, be cured. Uh, a chance to cut is a chance to cure. A chance to cut is a chance to remain on chronic antibiotics or have refractory disease that doesn't get better with antibiotics and is off to the races. We're treating the patient just like they had severe ulcerative colitis. We're using biologics in a patient who had a curative colectomy. Colitis could be very troubling. Just an inch or two of rectum left. We're not even talking about the risk of rectal cancer we just heard about, but very difficult symptoms of tenesmus and bleeding, an irritable pouch. IBS is difficult. Put IPS on top of that, you have a very uncomfortable patient. Pouch ischemia, impaired emptying, Crohn's disease of the pouch. David Sacker taught me an expression. There's nothing like a pouch to bring out Crohn's disease in someone. This happens, it is often a reason for pouch excision, which we'll see in a moment is not a walk in the park. Pelvic floor dysfunction, pouch stricture. Some of these patients are still coming back 10 years later, being dilated every three months. The Mayo Clinic had a 10-year reoperation rate of up to 50%. Besides early complications, late complications, these patients' small bowel obstructions, ventral hernias, you heard this morning from Marla, reduced fecundity, and in males, once you get into the pelvis, uh, erectile dysfunction. So, you'll have one of the world's experts follow me and talk about how he could rescue pouches, perhaps the premier pouch whisperer in the world. What happens if you take out a pouch? Well, these are not from third-rate community hospitals uh, in third or fourth world uh, countries. This is from the Mayo Clinic and St. Mark's, where these operations were developed and perfected. Mayo Clinic, after a pouch excision because of a pouch failure, 50, I'm looking at the author of this paper, 57% serious short-term complication rate within the first 30 days. Beyond 30 days, 37% serious long-term complication rate. This is in a pouch excision in the most expert hands. St. Mark's, 25% short-term complication rate, 57% long-term complication rate. So in that 5 to 10% of patients who need their pouches taken out because of the various long list of reasons to have pouch failure, you still see this very high risk of complications. Try everything because we're good at it, and bad things happen after surgery. How about Crohn's disease? Well, our uh, most potent combination comes from the uh, classic, uh, pivotal uh, study, landmark study, the SONIC trial, where azathioprine monotherapy was compared to infliximab monotherapy compared to combination therapy. Now, you might remember it's number like 30% remission rate at week 26, 45% uh, for infliximab, and maybe 55% for combination. The problem is, is that study enrolled people, some people, without CRPs, without colonoscopies, with ulceration. So you were including patients based on the Crohn's disease activity index, which we know is largely subjective and can include patients with a lot of IBS-type symptoms. But if you filtered out those patients and looked only at those patients who came in with a high CRP and lesions on their baseline colonoscopy, the likelihood of a steroid-free remission at week 26, we're not talking about clinically feeling better. Steroid-free, zero milligrams prednisone, zero milligrams of budesonide, almost 70%. So we're very, very good at treating our sickest IBD Crohn's patients. What happens, even in the best of hands, we're looking at seven IBD referral centers internationally. What happens in a plain old non-emergent 
iliocolic resection. My beloved mentor, the late Dan President, had an expression, you need to know one word of Yiddish. Iliocolic resection, laparoscopically, should be a simple operation. In on Monday, home for Shabbos. For those of you who don't know what Shabbos means, Friday night. This should be a straightforward operation. In IBD referral centers, overall serious complication rate, striking, 24%. Intra-abdominal sepsis, 12%. Anastomotic leak, the dreaded anastomotic leak, 8%. My biggest concern is when the surgeon says, three days after surgery, after, quote-unquote, an uncomplicated ileocolic resection, gee, your patient now has the earliest recurrence of Crohn's disease. They now have an enterocutaneous fistula. You better start that Remicade right away. What happened is, is the surgeon failed to do the diverting ileostomy that should have been done. So anastomotically, that's not a little fever. That's not, uh, Arthur Alves has taught me, if you have a patient with a fever post-op and you say it's atelectasis, it's not atelectasis in the lungs, it's atelectasis in the pelvis. So pre-op, uh, uh, pre-op immunosuppressives and anti-TNF drugs, in fact, the things we use did not increase post-op complications. So the medical therapies we use well and we use aggressively did not lead to these abysmal post-op complication rates. And with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Ramsey to try his best. Thank you. I'm actually short of breath. <laughs> One thing I love about my friend is that he's the only person who can speak without the need of the microphone, so I'm just going to start, okay? So, where is the slide? Okay, so this is really the sales scenario. Despite that, we have difference of our opinion, that we most of the time agree on the things, and I see him as one of the best gastroenterologists I had the privilege to work with, so we get along well. So, when we, when we talk about the, you know, uh, inflammatory bowel disease management, I think one of the critical things that's important to see, what is this about? This is about the patient. And we need to combine and work together to be able to serve that, you know, the focus, and that is the patient. I think, you know, one of the things that, when I listen to this incredible talk, that this unifying approach is very critical. At the earlier ACG guidelines, we saw the fact that there are three recommendations in the management of the ulcerative colitis. Two of them are related to surgery. And when we look at that things, one thing came out from this guideline that mortality is higher in the low-volume centers, which is very true. And it was wonderful, the fact that out of these 60 strong recommendations, two centers regarding the surgery, it was wonderful to be included in these guidelines. Not. And then we learned throughout the years, we came to 2018, went to the first surgery, ACG Crohn's guidelines. I think we learned a lot, the synergistic relationship, and we saw the fact that treatment of enteric complications. The top bullet parts, I pretty much agree the fact that this is the reason we're here. This is the reason that we're causing the problem and potentially spreading the disease and creating these complications for the surgeons. And then the other part is management requires a multidisciplinary approach on these patients, which I fully agree. And what is the definition of the medically refractory disease? Once again, we were included in this 2018 guideline again. Not. So our role as physicians is to be what I call being a medical surgeon. 
for the medical doctor to know these issues, to become a surgeon, and for me that I learned from Asher and all my colleagues from the NYU to be a better medical doctor serving them as a, trying to be a gastroenterologist. So what does medical refractory disease mean? What does it mean? What does a failed medical therapy is? I don't think there's any consensus on that. So this is the purple area that I like to operate on the patients, not at the beginning, but not in the red when the patient is really crawling on the floor, can you help me? It doesn't work that way, and we get into complications. But when we look at the medical refractory disease, this is what I try to do collectively in our IBD center. We put targets for our patients, and we also need to be aware every patient has different targets that define success for them, and we need to respect that, understand that. Individualizing the IBD care is incredibly critical. What are these targets that we need to be assessing? Social restrictions. When you get out, do you check where the restroom is wherever you go in? What's your diet restrictions? What is your work restrictions? This should not be the fact that I work really well, but my supervisor has a great understanding. I have an office desk next to a bathroom. That's called deconditioning sexual restrictions, and family-related activities. How much of these patients can go out and enjoy their life with their kids' activities? Let's put a target on these together, and I ask them, how do you assess your quality of life? Zero to 10, 10 being worse, zero being the worst. When they tell me seven, I ask their partner, what is his or her quality of life? When they tell me it's three or four, that's called a decondition, accepting the lesser way of norm as living just to avoid the surgery. So there is a room for an increment for our communication between us to be able to serve these patients better. So this is a timely surgery. This patient was referred to my dear partner, Professor uh, Sai Katz, where the patient had a one-dose influx back. Two weeks later, he comes in with a major abdominal pain. This, he just called me. He needs to go to surgery. Absolutely. And this patient is actually doing great, and he just had his J pouch and closing ileostomy. This is also one of my other partners, patient, Dr. Hudusman, Dr. Chang, seeing the fact that an incredible, dramatic, hemorrhagic, you know, the uh, proctocolitis itself that had to go to surgery bypass the medical therapy itself. So we're doing good certain things, but there are also room for improvement, just like on the surgical side, so is on the medical side. When you see this type of a picture, long years of disease, one side is bad, one side is good, we may say there may be a little bit of improvement for the, towards early referral. Patient, quote-unquote, doing really well for years, come back with a dysplasia. When you see the fact that colon is actually pretty sick, so is this one, what I call this bear claw ulcers ripping that colon. That takes a while to get there. It doesn't happen overnight. So is this one with a major amount of pseudopolyps that takes a while to develop itself. And this one, quote-unquote, persistent or recurrent bowel obstruction. I don't know what you call persistent or recurrent, but that's a lot of bowel obstruction for a surgeon to handle. So this is a problem that we deal with. Or a patient like this that who, who was referred to us from out of town with a dramatic phlegmon that three or four times I had to divert and get out, come back six months later to cool off the inflammation itself. This is a patient that we were able to get in there, and this is the thing that I'm talking about, the progression of the disease, that the fistula becomes a target fistula from the disease side where this could be avoided with timely surgery. And this is also another way of looking at the things, a similar scenario how the things can be complicated and involves with multiple fistulizations without the timely surgery. Another scenario, this patient had a severe jejunalitis, and I cannot prove it yet, but prolonging the, not referring the surgery can potentially progress the patient's disease to go to the other sites, such as target sites or the disease going up. There's no data to support that. A similar situation, again, 
when we look at the uh, physical disease. This is one of my partner's patient, Dr. Kurat uh, from the NYU. Patient came back with a major retroperitoneal abscess. This is a disastering thing, a tough thing to find out. So you keep the drain in and inject some betadine intraoperatively to get into that cavity. And also another one. The right side is all uh, okay, the left side is disease, room for improvement. Or the things that we talked about, Tom and Phil, a couple of dysplasia that can be missed potentially, all okay, two or five years down the line is a major, you know, the T4 tumor invading the body wall of the abdomen itself. So we need to be ahead, two to three steps ahead of the ball game. We don't want to be looking like a Dr. Evil waiting with a knife at the corner and who is this bad guy? That's the reason we need to collaborate it together. And this is the most recent surgical guideline itself, 2008. They have done great. We need to work together, patient to be involved, but look what the Brits and the Irish are saying. These patients surgically need to be sent to a cordary, not tertiary, cordary referral centers and optimize the care before the surgery. Why? There is data to support the that if the weight loss greater than 10% within the last three months called not timely surgery or the BMI low, albumin low, that's equal to complication. So what did we learn? Collecting for IBD is about teamwork and high volume matters. We're going to get into this pissing contest that biologics matters or the biologic doesn't matter. I'll find you a data say the fact that biologics really messes the things up. You'll find a data the fact that it actually does not messes the things up. But what messes the things up, not timely surgery to be referred to the surgeon. And this is something that we also did that. We thought that this was more. When I was in Cleveland, we did this study show the fact that the infliximax, quote-unquote, increased complications. I have to first admit, probably it was not the timely surgery. The other thing what, you know, the Asher talked about is so true. We get into this making this egocentric, uh, you know, the, uh, the focus. If somebody gives an iliostomy to my patient, I will never send that patient to gate. That's the... That patient is not served well in that mindset. So we got to stop making this as a sign of weakness of the surgeon. Iliostomy can be a lifesaver in these patients and should not be used for marketing purposes for the surgeons. If you come to me, I don't give you a bag because these patients suffer. And hearing the possibility of the ileostomy is a big deal coming from the gastroenterology colleague that helps to ease the level of the anxiety when patients are being referred to surgery. So when do I give an ileostomy? Preoperative steroids, escalation of the medical therapy, infliximab, adalumumab, ustunacumab, orlandomab, Disneyland map. So we got to stop at one point to be able to send the surgery. Anemia, mental physical deconditioning, and intraoperative findings is very important to do so. Why? If you don't do that, this is what happens to these patients, complemented with the MIS marketing, which has actually a great value. Patient suffers two to three years with this nightmare of a problem. I also did the same thing on the Inflexplus IPAA. Our paper showed the fact that increased sepsis rate and the leak rate. But what happened, the fact that this was most likely not timely surgery. But we have a data that if you don't send the patient timely, this is from the Hopkins, over 2,600 patients. You know, these patients that who were operated later than 24 hours, they saw the fact that delayed operations is independently associated with complication and mortality. So what's the message? Surgery in biological era matters. Patients tend to be sicker. Multisciplinary approach is more important than ever. Necessity for multidisciplinary consensus meetings is very critical. And some of the data from our institution, from our team, that we had the privilege of serving in the last two and a half years. Patients do come to high volume center, 92 redo pouches, 95 index pouches, 
and these patients did well. We compared the results, how are we doing? But the fact is, 92 of these patients had to go through another three-stage procedure. Two reasons. One, potentially not timely surgery. Two, all the things that, you know, the Asher said that I agree about, not to be able to centralize about the, uh, the, uh, the referral of the pouch procedures itself. These patients did well despite the fact that they had a higher redo associated you know, the intraoperative bleeding, operative time, the length of stay. But the results were similar to the index pouch procedure itself that sells the fact that teamwork and experience matters in these patients' care. And also the thing that Asher talked about, which is so true, patient get a complication, leak, fistula, Asher, now this is a Crohn's disease, treat my patient, it is not surgical. Guess what? All these patients that referred to us as a, for a redo pouch, we found the fact that 70% of the patients did have a treatment of a Crohn's disease. We were able to salvage majority of these pouches because they were not Crohn's disease. What they were most likely a mechanical defects can mimic a Crohn's disease, can come as a leak, can come as a fistula that cause a problem on these patients. So when these patients, quote unquote, labeled as a Crohn's of the pouch, can be given a second option itself. And last thing is, is it about for accredited surgical centers itself? This is not about one institution or another. This is not about the bricks and mortars. This is about the patients, how can we serve better collectively? 893 patients that we served collectively in our group complication rate, 41%, which is fair, it's high, but it's not that high considering the complexity of these patients. On osmotic leak rates, it's low, very low reoperation rate, and the fact that when they reoperate more and more, they have a higher morbidity and longer length of stay. So what have we got to do? Be humble, don't be afraid to ask for help, and work together. And it's about the teamwork, and it's about to call ourselves medical surgeons. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, so first of all, I want to make the comment that since you moved to New York, you started talking faster. <laughs> it was a wonderful presentation by both of you. The first question from the audience was they wanted everyone to vote for who won, but actually we've decided as moderators that um, you both did a great job, and obviously patients are going to benefit from this discussion. So uh, the question from the audience that we'll start with actually is related to just understanding timing of biologics. So you both have talked about this issue. Let's get into the details of it. Um, maybe, Asher, you can start. When you have somebody who's been on multiple therapies and who is going to require surgery, do you do anything differently or do you not have the luxury of making those decisions? All right, so again, that was a very artificial presentation I gave. I think the two uh, most serious or even grave errors we make in the management of our patients is not recognizing the patient with moderate to severe disease and starting aggressive therapy early and letting the patient have disease progress and become, make it become more difficult to get the patient into a true deep remission. And similarly, having a patient on aggressive medical therapy and recognizing that it's not working and the patient has uh, a road to medical futility and a much greater risk of post-op complications and a poorer quality of life. Most of what I said was um, obviously tilted towards uh, medical therapy, but again, I think it's very important to recognize when uh, medical therapy isn't working. We, we had a breakout session on acute severe ulcerative colitis. I couldn't stress enough times during that presentation 
that the most important we do, thing we do is recognize when medical therapy isn't working. And the sicker the patient is, the earlier we should think about sending the patient to surgery. The sicker the patient, the lower the bar should be. We might say this patient is too sick to have surgery. It's far more likely that the patient is going to do much worse without surgery. And Faza, do you have some additional comments? I, I certainly appreciated your comment that we are probably not doing temporary or diverting ileostomies as a staging procedure often enough. But when do you uh, make these decisions with patients on biological therapies, or do you have any other suggestions? So uh, the, the point, thank you, David, the, the point that I made that if they had a significant amount of escalation therapy in a long period of time, that's really a red flag for me that the patient potentially deconditioned uh, himself or herself. I like to stop the things like a month before if I can, uh, but there is some data, you've got to check the levels, and it may be safe, it may be not. To me right now, if the patient has those criteria that I emphasize in those two slides, it's okay to just to give them a three months of an ileostomy rather than dealing with a nightmare of fistulas and everything that Asher's talked about for years and loss of trust to us as a physicians and loss of trust to the system. It is one of the most horrific complications that one can go through. There's a question here about this current state, and maybe my other colleagues up here uh, can comment as well. Is there still a role, or is anyone considering continent ileostomies for patients now? Yeah, so the continent ileostomy, you have to pick your battle. It depends on the, it needs a motivated surgeon and a motivated uh, patient. The, when we look at these results over 10 years uh, with my mentor, Vic Fazio, uh, that we found the fact that the revision rates is around uh, three over 10 years. So these patients really have to uh, go through three and other major procedures just to keep the nipple well. But one patient gets one, and they had a leostomy and they love it, they cannot let it go. So most of the time we revise it. I do recommend the patients that who has significant aversion to have a permanent ileostomy after a failed J pouch that I will strongly encourage them as long as they have the body habitus, which is low BMI female. Uh, those are the ones that I would encourage. Otherwise, high BMI and everything, I don't, but it needs a motivated surgeon and a patient. And don't do it for Crohn's. It's a very bad thing. It fails. We had a paper published in the DSR. I'd agree. I mean, I think the patients have to have access to a specialized center who can manage the complications of, of this disease. This is not the type of person you want to fly into your center, do the operation, and then send them back home um, because they can come in with obstructions and complications of the, of the continental ileostomy. So in a highly motivated patient, uh, I think it's reasonable. I think this is an important question, David. My apologies, to, uh, Stefan. There is a major marketing going on with some of the groups in Florida. Th that needs to be really carefully assessed because these patients really get into a major problem. Uh, I'll stop there. Yeah, I'm sorry, Stefan. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, there's a significant proportion of patients who are young and are not a candidate for a pouch for whatever reason. And um, these are the patients, if they're highly motivated, um, and, and usually they self-select out. They usually research. I mean, we're living in an information age, and uh, they're savvy often, and they know what they're getting into. What's the current status of considering a J-pouch for a patient with Crohn's colitis? Can you comment on that, all of you? Uh, sure, I can start. So... 
I think we have more and more data that in, in a patient with known Crohn's colitis going into, um, into surgery, we're not talking about patients that develop Crohn's disease of the pouch after the fact. Those patients have horrible pro prognosis and oftentimes fail and ultimately need um, a pouch excision. In patients with known Crohn's colitis, um, with, with, without small bowel involvement, maybe with a limited fistula. I think those are, and, and, and a motivated patient, I think those patients are candidates for, for J-pouch surgery. But they have to understand that there's a high risk of getting Crohn's disease of the pouch, that they ultimately need to go back on medical therapy, and they need to have very close surveillance and, and, and monitoring. And um, However, since, since the alternative is really an endoleostomy, I think in a highly motivated patient, uh, it's reasonable. And again, you have to manage your patient expectations. If they have uh, eyes wide open, isolated, chronic Crohn's disease without any small bowel in involvement and ideally without any perianal disease, then we do offer these patients a, um, a J-pouch. And they have to be motivated and be aware that uh, they may, if they develop fistulizing perianal disease, they may require multiple operations to salvage their pouch, and they still may have a significant uh, pouch excision rate. Now, um, in respect to... Um, uh, Dr. Kornblue's um, slide that he showed about uh, from Amy Leitner and about the St. Mark's uh, um, short-term complications from pouch excision, we recently looked at a nationwide sample of pouch excisions, and I think it's a one of the first, if not the only, multi-center study, and actually the short-term complication rate was only in the 30 percentile, and the majority of those were minor complications. So I think that those two studies that you mentioned are, have a significant selection bias, as in they were the worst of the worst patients, and so there might have been some some um, diagnostic bias in that, so may not be perhaps. Well, that's why I chose it. Yeah. <laughs> so true. regarding the Crohn's disease, David, I think it's important to look at it and classify the Crohn's disease three. We have two papers that we have done that actually show the fact that it's pretty safe. The Crohn's presents three ways. One, you know it preoperatively after a subtotal colectomy in the absence of a major perianal disease or a limited perineal disease, or barely to no small bowel disease, we have done Crohn's uh, patients at J-PAC procedure. They did great. The other patients that who we looked at it, in the past we used to do a lot of two-stage procedure. You get the J-PAC, pathologist called you, hey guys, you guys are wrong, this was Crohn's. We watched those patients, they also did great. The ones that who did not do great are the ones that who were diagnosed as an ulcerative colitis, and they did two or three years really well. And then the disease established itself as a Crohn's disease, two to seven percent, uh, you know, the later down the line. These are the patients are the ones that didn't do great, which we have no way of knowing it. So in my hands, when somebody comes with a Crohn's colitis, doesn't have any major perianal disease or very, very no to limited small bowel disease, as long as they're interested, I'm very much liberal and complemented with our gastroenterologist with the biologics and everything. Yeah. The answer is yes. Yeah, I, I would agree because the, it, we have to realize that now in the modern era of biologic medicines, we're not just talking anti-TNFs. We have a slew of different medications and, and uh, motivated patients who would like to preserve their continence uh, would likely be willing to keep their pouch uh, if they could go on biologic medications that control the enteritis. Uh, Professor Baumelman. I'm well aware that uh, many of U.S. gastroenterologists, they give, uh, let's say, prophylactic anti-TNF after elocolic resection. So what would you do if you have an intraoperative or postoperative diagnosis of Crohn's disease in a patient who had a pouch for presumed ulcerative colitis. So not a delayed diagnosis, but that you have the diagnosis 
during surgery or in the pathology, would you, let's say, give a, such a patient also NTTNF as a sort of prophylaxis or? So we're, we have a few patients like that, but we also now have developed a prospective study where we're treating these patients the same as we do in an ileocolic with monitoring and early therapy. And in the highest risk patients, um, at least in our practice and what we're studying, is the use of metronidazole right after surgery uh, and thinking about other ways of prevention and careful monitoring, just like you suggested we should be doing. So, And not just the patient you said where the surprise pathology result is that there was granulomas or something to think it's Crohn's and not UC, but rather in everybody, since we certainly are missing too much when we, when we see these other patients. I think that's a valid question. And, and what would the panel do, surgeons, if they have a, a patient who have intraoperatively suddenly a small bowel localization, which is not strictorizing, but clearly Crohn's disease. So you go on with the pouch or... So, so this, is a, this is at the time of a colectomy, there's a yes. small bowel disease. So, I, I mean, my, so, so the small bowel disease, where it is? If it's really up in the jejumen and everything, then that, that's no-no. But if this is a TI, I mean, there is also controversy what exactly were Crohn's disease or backwash ileitis. Uh, you know, the, in that setting, you know, the, I am okay to do a J-pouch, but likely stage the patient in that setting to see so I can speak the patient in more detail if the pathology comes back really a 100% Crohn's disease and I give the odds what I shared with you right now, then I will still proceed. You know, the, for a limited, limited just TI disease as long as the patient is interested. I'm believing it's biologics in this setting we have a potential future, but if the patient is happy, hey, I'm fine, live with the ileostomy, who am I to tell them you should have a pouch? So that's the reason the patient needs to be involved. That's the reason I stage these procedures, Willem. The, the problem is mostly that the patient had the colectomy in the other center, and then you do the completion proctectomy and find out during surgery that there is a small bowel localization. Yeah, if that's a high up in the jejunum, I don't do a pouch in that setting. If just at that TTI, I will go ahead and do that thing in that setting and see how it goes because they already consented, they're ready to go for it. I would. All right, well, there's a couple other questions, but in the interest of time, we're going to do one ARS question, or maybe there's more than one, but we're going to wrap this session. So let's see the ARS question. Is there one? There it is. So for those who are logged on, please join us in answering. Which is least important in deciding who should get post-op maintenance of remission medication in Crohn's disease? Disease behavior, penetrating versus stricturing, not structuring, age at surgery, smoking status, microscopic inflammation at the surgical margin, or duration of disease between disease presentation and time of surgery? Please answer. Okay, so it looks like we didn't do as well here. <laughs> Does anyone want to take this and explain the right answer? Can you go back so we can talk about it? One of our surgical colleagues, or Asher, do you want to tackle this? Well, there's, there's a number of studies since the 60s that looked at microscopic inflammation at the surgical margin. Does not find a definitive, uh, consistent uh, message that this does increase uh, risk. I, the question should probably be a little more uh, nuanced in saying rather than getting post-op maintenance, who is at greater risk of post-op recurrence. Uh, clearly, the people who are going to want the post-op aggressive maintenance is uh, number one disease behavior. Uh, 
behavior, number one, and number uh, five, I would say. Age of surgery, in other words, young age is more likely to have an aggressive course. Based on that alone, it does not necessarily uh, mandate the need for uh, anti-TNF. Smoking status increases the risk. But I think that the more subtle way to answer, question this is which patients would you put on post-op maintenance versus who has the more greater likelihood of an aggressive course? And just uh, for the gastroenterologists in the room, maybe our surgeons can educate us. How often can you not tell, and is there really not a clean margin? Is that something that happens more often than we realize? And I don't think so. I mean, I think maybe the issue more be there occasionally. We talked about this on Twitter, Fezzer, uh, recently about uh, what may be called, and I think it was one of your case, actually. No, it was Silverberg. So, so uh, early post-op recurrence, which may be actually disease left behind, for example, luminal ulcer in otherwise macroscopically uh, normal bowel. So I think as colorectal surgeons, we're all taught to palpate the bowel and to get to soft suppleness and um Recently, with this increased attention um, to uh, the mesentery, um, this jives very well with what we've all been taught for years to, to try to get back to healthy, soft, not just bowel wall, but where the mesentery tends to thin out also. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think, I mean, that's, that's our teaching, and, um, and, but occasionally you do see this where you, you, you went back to grossly normal bowel, um, and that's where you did the anastomosis, but your um, path specimen shows microscopic disease at the margin. So. Another um, situation where you may, uh, and Fez and I have talked about this recently also, about um, what might be missed at time of the index operation is for diffuse stricturing jejunoliitis. And uh, Ian Lavery um, at uh, Cleveland Clinic has some Bakelite balls that he uses to run through the bowel looking for missed um, ring-like strictures that, that can lead to um, early reoperation. Okay. Well, with that, I think we're going to adjourn this session. I hope you all have a, a good evening. There are some receptions and other programs to check out. Thank you. Thank you.